Um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts 20, verses 17 to 35, uh, over two weeks. Uh, and we're basically, we're not going to do like the first half and the second. We're going to go all the way through it today, looking at it from one perspective. And then the next time we come together, we're going to go all the way through it again, looking at it from a, a different perspective. Because I think it's such a rich bit of material. And I do think looking at those other books, which we'll, we'll dive back and forth, um, really supplement the material very well uh, and, and really just give us this grand picture of what Paul was trying to communicate with those believers that he gathered with. So remember the context. I understand some of you weren't here. I understand a lot of us, we forget when we walk out the door. Uh, and so reminder of the context. We have a little map here. We, we like maps here. I know you can't read the writing. It's not necessarily designed for you to read the writing. But if you look at all those different dots, all those are little cities that uh, Paul popped in on. Paul's about to leave this region of the world with no knowledge as to whether he's going to go back to that region. That where you see Asia there, kind of in the middle of the screen, uh, it's not up there, but one of the coastal cities of Asia is the city of Ephesus. And Paul had just is just about now to finish up a missionary journey, his third one there, in that region, specifically three years at the city of Ephesus. And knowing now that it's time for him to leave, knowing now that that period of his life and ministry is over, Paul catches a ship and he hits each one of those dots that you see up there on the map. And I think he spends time with the leaders of each of those churches. Perhaps they're smaller churches. He gathers with the whole church. And he gives them some final parting words, some deathbed, I compared it to, type of messages for the people to consider, considering that I'm never going to see you again. He says that. You'll never see my face again, almost certainly. And he wants them to know these important things. And so the material that we're going to be looking at the next two times we're together uh, are very rich. And I don't think we can really do it in one gathering time. And so we're going to begin by considering the example that the Apostle Paul set for the leaders there in the city of Ephesus. So this he's gathering with the believers in Ephesus, the elders of the church in Ephesus. And the first thing that we're going to kind of focus on is the example that Paul set for them. Because he'll say that. Look at my example that I've set for you while I was here and do the same. The next time that we come together, we'll look a little more specifically at the message that Paul shared with those elders, the, the words that he spoke to them that they needed to know. Does that sound fair? Are we all in? Promising you'll come back? Okay, good. So let's read, starting at verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to him. And when, when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that impri imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, and you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Quite a little message there. Paul's final words to them. Not going to be able to Zoom call with them. Probably not the challenge of getting letters to them. All those things. This is it. This is the last time he's going to spend some time with them. And he wanted them to know these things. And he gave them this message. We'll call it a sermon. It's the, fir- it's the only recorded sermon that the, of the Apostle Paul giving to a group of believers. Typically when he's talking and he's giving us a sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts, it's to unbelievers. And so we can read those, we can learn about the gospel presentation that is there and certainly the principles of scripture that are there. But this is a message to believers. This is a message to the church and particularly to the leaders of the church. And again, I think there's a ton of things that we can glean, glean from this message. First and foremost, we can glean from it the example that the Apostle Paul has set for them. And so he begins in really in verse 18, this message, and he says, you yourselves know how I live, um, lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And I'll go on, I'll say, serving the Lord with humility and with tears and the like. And so knowing he's not going to see these folks again, Paul calls the elders together, presents them a final instruction, and the first thing that he says to them is this, you yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day I set foot in Asia, in your community there. He begins by challenging these Ephesian elders to consider the manner of life that he lived among them for three years that he lived among them. Look at my life, judge it, is what he says. See if I lived in such a way that I modeled for you how you should live your life. Or did I live the opposite? Was I a hypocrite? He says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. He is telling these Ephesian elders that they are to live their lives as he lived his life. He set an example for them. And now he's telling them that they should follow that example in the lives they live and in the ministries that they are serving in. I think it's important here. Paul is not, uh, the context makes it very clear. He's not tooting his own horn. He's not running around saying, look, I'd love for you all to come pat me on the back right now for the life that I live. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying, hey, everybody, look at me. What he is doing is this. He's drawing people to Christ as one who himself was faithfully trying to follow Christ. That's what he's doing. Another place Paul would say this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he would say, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. First and foremost, Paul was a follower of, of Jesus. And any other service that he did for Christ, it came out of his relationship that first and foremost, he was a follower of Jesus. Last week, I suggested that we read through those pastoral epistles. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy in one of those epistles. First Timothy chapter six, he says, but as for you, O man of God, that's Timothy, flee these things. I know, let me go back to context. Timothy is a young pastor. And Paul is encouraging him in being a pastor of a community, a young pastor of a community. You're going to be ministering to folks that are older than you, been in the faith longer than you. That's intimidating. He's trying to encourage him. This is the things that you need to do as a pastor. But this is what he says as he's wrapping up the book. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And instead, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is a letter to Pastor Timothy about how he is to lead as a pastor of God's people. And Paul doesn't say these things. He doesn't say, Timothy, you need to make sure you work on fun and engaging sermons so that people will keep coming back. 
doesn't say that to him. He doesn't say to him, and as for you, Timothy, make sure you make connections with key people in your community because that's how your church is going to advance. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't even say something relatively positive like this. Timothy, read and study everything you can about ministry so that you can be the most effective minister in that community. He doesn't even say that. Rather, what he says to him, Timothy, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue steadfastness, and pursue gentleness. We'll put that in some other words. He says to him, Timothy, concentrate on your walk with Jesus and your relationship with Jesus. That's what he tells him. And that's what Paul is telling these elders. Look at my example. First and foremost, I made sure I was right with God. There's a very real trap that many of us that are seeking to serve the Lord, whether it's officially as the pastor of a church or you're a ministry leader or something like that, there's a very real trap that many of us that are trying to serve the Lord can fall into. And that's beginning to lose sight of the one that we are actually serving. Because what begins to happen, we become so engrossed by the tasks that we're doing. Preparing a Bible study, prepping for a children's church lesson, meeting the needs of the poor or the enfeebled, running around getting this facility ready that it might look nice when people arrive. We become so engrossed in the things that we are doing that we forget the one that we are actually doing those things for. Paul told Timothy, Focus on your faith, your own relationship with Christ. And he's telling these elders, that's what I did. So the first thing that Paul tells these Ephesian leaders is to be ever mindful of their own personal relationships with Christ because ministry has to flow from that. It can flow from other things, but effective ministry has to flow from an intimacy of relationship with Christ. Second thing that Paul teaches these elders in this opening sentence is the value of a clear conscience. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, you yourselves know how I have lived. Now, we all know how some people, they lead in a style that can be summarized this way, do as I say, not as I do. I think Paul would have actually thought that was something that would disqualify a person from ministry. Paul would say, do as I do. It takes years and years of faithfulness to build a foundation upon which a ministry can be built. But it takes one or maybe two acts of hypocrisy to destroy that foundation. Because people will stop listening to anything you have to say the moment it becomes clear that your words and your life do not match up. And Paul knew that. And Paul lived his life, he says here, the whole time from the first day in such a way he lived his life where the life that he lived didn't contradict the words that he said. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul was perfect. It doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul was, at, was without sin. Paul was a sinner who fell short of even the own standards he had for himself. And there were likely times where Paul had to say, you know what, I'm sorry. I responded in a way I shouldn't have, you know, I apologize for that. No doubt there were times where those types of things happened, living with people for three years. And so this doesn't mean that you and I need to be perfect among those that we are seeking to influence because we're sinners as well. But what it does mean is this. It means that we are striving to be in right relationship with God and with men. What it means is that we're ever looking to put away known sin in our lives. What it means is that we're not comfortable with hypocrisy, doing one thing but saying another. What it means is that we're continually going before the Lord and praying the prayer of David, search me, O God, and know my heart, and find if there be any way within me that is sin. And then when God puts his finger on an area, responding in obedience, confessing our sin. What's it mean to confess? Confess means to agree, acknowledge, you know, Lord, you're right. And that is an area that I, I hang on to. But afresh, I'm going to give it over to you. Take Root it out of me, Lord. I don't want it there. That's what Paul is talking about. Not perfection, but living in such a way, walking in integrity, seeking to put away hypocrisy. That's what he tells of these leaders. You know, you, you talk to folks or you, you see folks that are commenting about, that's it, I'm done with faith. 
And what is one of the reasons why they often say, bunch of hypocrites? Those leaders there, a bunch of hypocrites. Why would I want to be in a faith like that? And frankly, they have a point. So again, we're not perfect, but we are people that are seeking to walk in integrity. We are people that are seeking to put aside hypocrisy. And that, that's what Paul was seeking to do. And that's what he is modeling for these guys. He says, look at my example. That's what you need to do. Now that you're going to be leading the folks of this community, that's what you guys need to do. He goes on. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He goes on in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. The Apostle Paul. But notice what he refers to himself as, as a servant. He was the leader of this congregation. He was the leader, if you will, of many, many congregations. He was the apostle. He's written over just about half of our New Testament are accredited to him as the author of them, those teaching documents that we have before us and that we study so regularly. The apostle Paul, and yet he sees himself as a servant. And notice that, as a humble servant. Many people go into positions of leadership so that others can serve them. They go into positions of leadership so that they can give the instructions as to what people are going to do and what people need to do. If they can just become the person in charge, and whether that be the entire organization or just a little small portion of that organization, then people will have to serve them, have to listen to them, have to obey them. That's the way of the world. And sadly, it's the way for many in the church, capital C, of Jesus Christ. It should not be, but unfortunately, many times it's become that. But Paul modeled for these elders, and he exhorted them to follow his example. Leadership in the kingdom of God is servant leadership. Jesus himself declared, for even the Messiah himself, even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others. Now, maybe you remember the context of that statement. Perhaps you don't. It was the time where two of Jesus' disciples, two brothers, James and John, the Gospel of Matthew also tells us that their mom came along as well. And so this group of three, they went to Jesus, they approached him, and they asked him, that's the nice way of saying it in kind of English, it really is they demanded of him, that when he came into his kingdom, that they be seated, James and John, be seated to his right and to his left. Number two and number two A in the kingdom. Jesus gets to be number one. How diplomatic of them. And Jesus responds to them when they ask that question. He says, you, you don't have any idea what you're asking. And I think from our context, when Jesus comes into his kingdom, it's the cross. Nobody would ask for that. And yet, when you come into your kingdom, when you're seated on your throne is what they have in mind. Could we sit on your left hand and your right hand? And Jesus says, you don't have any idea what you're asking. And then he reminds him of the verse that I just read to you. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul understood this. And he sought to live this out. And now he's encouraging these leaders that that has to be the way that they approach their ministries as well. Servants. Now the next thing, this is, you're keeping track, the fourth thing. The fourth thing that I notice about the example that Paul set for these leaders is that he understood that even as he served others, ultimately he was a servant of the Lord. Notice he says that in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Humility, not humidity. That would be in Jersey somewhere. With all humility. Even as Paul ministered to hundreds and hundreds of people, what he never lost sight of is that ultimately any ministry that he did was ministry to the Lord and not to people. And the reason? Because in ministry, if you serve people, those people will eventually let you down. And you will eventually burn out. Because all people, even well-meaning people, will eventually let you down. And so you may be able to do it for a week or a month or a year or a whole bunch of years. And you may, be able to, you may be able to pour yourself out during that period of time for others and just give and give and give. But soon enough, those people that you are serving are going to let you down. They'll disappoint you. 
they'll frustrate you, and they will ultimately drive you to the place where you've had enough. I'm tired of serving. And soon you're going to begin to find yourself thinking or even saying, that's really bad, but at least thinking, how come more people aren't? And you can fill in the blank with whatever you want those people to be doing and expect that those people should be doing. Or how come I'm the only one doing such and such? Or how come none of these people thank me for all that I do? And you begin to think these things, and soon enough, it's just a matter of time before you either come to the place of repentance or you bag it all together. If you serve people, people will let you down. And you'll begin thinking things like, this isn't worth it. Or God, why do we even bother with these people? Or God, these people don't deserve someone like me. Those sorts of things. If, on the other hand, your eyes are on the Lord and your service is unto the Lord, you will be continually refreshed. And this applies to serving in a ministry. It applies to work. I hope when you go to work that your labor is unto the Lord and not unto the boss or not unto the people that work under you or whatever it might be, but it's unto the Lord. Because if it's unto the boss, when he or she leaves the office, you're not such a great employee anymore, are you? Because he or she's not around to see you. If it's unto people and they begin to let you down, then you know, you know what, I'm tired of this and I'm going to do my own thing. But if you labor unto the Lord so that at the end of your days, the end of your week, the end of your career, the Lord says, I was pleased with how you represented me in this place. Well, that motivates you and, and drives you forward for the rest of your days because the Lord never lets us down. The Lord never ceases to encourage us and to inspire us. The Lord never ceases to move our hearts to the place of worship where we want to respond to his king kindness toward us and serve him and then serve others. And for decades, Paul served the Lord with all humility. And now he's encouraging these elders to do the same. That phrase there, with all humility, some of your versions add another word or two. They translate it as, uh, with all humility of mind. For instance, it says that, I think, in the New King James. And that is reminiscent to me, at least, maybe to you as well, of what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Great chapter, classic chapter. Philippians chapter 2, it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's the humility of mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God, a thing that he had to grasp onto, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though God in the flesh, Jesus didn't feel he had to hold on to that place of privilege that that should have afforded him. But instead, he relaxed his grip on his place of preeminence in order that he might serve others, even in a type of service that would cause him to go to the cross on our behalf. Paul said, let that be your mindset as you serve others. So that phrase, humility of mind, that Paul uses in our Acts passage, what it means is truly esteeming others better than yourself. It lines right up with Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. What it means is it, it's realizing the it's the grace of God, not our own merit, but it's the grace of God that allows us to know him and to walk with him. The privilege of ministry was something Paul, he didn't earn that. It was God's grace. And any gifts that Paul might have had or any position that Paul might have held wasn't the result of something that he did, but rather it was the result of God's grace in his life. And his was simply to stay out of God's way, to allow God to work through him, to serve the Lord with humility of mind, truly esteeming others better than himself as he poured out his life for them, but ultimately for the Lord. And now that's what he's exhorting these elders to. So 
we've looked at five things so far. We'll take a little break here, uh, commercial kind of interruption here. These are the five things that we've seen so far. Number one, first and foremost, Paul was a follower of Jesus. Two, he sought to live his life and serve the Lord in such a way that he could maintain a clear conscience before God and others. Three, he recognized that leadership wasn't meant as an opportunity to be served, but rather to serve others. Four, any service that he did do was ultimately to the Lord. And then finally, serving the Lord and others from the place of humility, truly considering others better than himself. Now he's going to continue. Look at uh, verse 18 continues. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and, he says, with tears. And so how did Paul minister among those there in Ephesus? Well, he got involved in their lives. Paul wasn't some distant pastor. Paul didn't just sort of sweep in, do a little ministry, and disappear back into his study so he could be away from the people that he was ministering to. Paul entered into the life, into life with other people. He was em empathetic to the needs of other people. Paul allowed the difficulties that others were going through to become his own difficulties. And in the same way, the joys that others were enjoying, they became his joys as well. Paul would write this in the book of Romans. He simply, he would say, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And Paul did that. And now here he is exhorting these leaders to do that as well. Paul was a man that had a tender heart toward others. Some of us need to ask God to soften our hearts for those that we're ministering to or caring for. Paul had a tender heart toward others. And thus the service toward others was many times, as he says in the verse here, accompanied by tears. I'm reminded of the passage that we have found in our Gospels that records the death of Jesus' close friend, a man by the name of Lazarus. A lot of you know the story. Lazarus had become sick. His family called for him, come, you know, your friend is sick. Jesus doesn't get there in time. Lazarus dies. He's actually buried by the time that Jesus gets there. If you know the story, Jesus is going to go on to raise this man back to life, but nobody knows that except Jesus. And so as far as the disciples are concerned, as far as the appearances are, Jesus has made his way to this little town to attend a funeral. And he gets there, and there are people that are weeping, and they're mourning, and, and all of this that is going on. And it tells us there that Jesus entered into that mourning. Shortest verse in our Bibles, Jesus wept. Now, that's remarkable to me, because Jesus knows what he's about to do. I share this story sometimes at funerals. Jesus knows what he's about to do. I would expect Jesus would have a little smirk on his face. Man, I'm going to blow these people's minds in a minute here. You know, I'd expect him to have this kind of knowing Cheshire cat kind of look. And instead of having a smirk on his face or a giggle about what he's about to do, Jesus weeps. And he's not weeping for why you and I weep. We go to a funeral, we weep because we see the pain that is going on there. We weep because, man, I'm never going to see that person again. We weep because, man, I always wanted to tell them this, and I never told them that. We grieve in that way because of the loss that we're experiencing. Jesus grieved because of the pain everybody else was going through. Jesus grieved because of the consequences of sin. That's what, what grieved the Lord's heart. Paul here is doing the same type of thing. He's entering into the difficulties that those in his congregation were experiencing. He's embracing them as his own here. And so Paul says, how I served you with tears. Paul had a soft, tender heart toward those that he cared for. If you serve anyone in any way, whether it be in a secular job somewhere or you lead a Sunday school class or you pastor a church or whatever it might be, may I add or encourage you, pray that God would soften your heart for the people that you're ministering to and for. Paul ministered with tears. Think about Paul. Think about some of the things we read. Strong, confident leader. Paul would stand before kings and tell them that they needed to get right with God. 
Paul would stand before folks with rocks that were throwing them at him. And until he couldn't talk anymore, he would keep talking. He was a strong, confident leader that stood before kings and angry mobs. And yet, at the same time, he had a soft, tender heart that loved the people that he ministered to. And now Paul's exhorting these Ephesians to allow the same type of heart to develop within them. He's not done. He'll say, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, as we just read. And then he adds, and with trials. Serving the Lord with trials. Now we've seen a number of those in our study of the book of Acts. We know of the difficulties many times Paul had in the various synagogues that he ministered in. He would go into those communities, sometimes a couple of weeks, sometimes three months we saw the synagogue would welcome him, but eventually they would drive him out. We have learned and we read about the physical attacks that he experienced, sometimes at the hands of the Roman authorities, sometimes at the hands of the Jews, sometimes at the hands of the Gentile community members. We looked at the examples of the plots that were formed against him and how he had to sneak out of certain towns just in order to preserve his own life. Paul ministered through lots and lots of trials, trials that he underwent because of his service to the Lord. I think this is a helpful passage to kind of wrap it up, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When I say wrap it up, I don't mean the study. we got time here, all right? So don't get all excited. I'm talking about this little teeny section. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this. He says, are they servants of Christ? There's a context you can go figure it out. But um, he says, well, I'm a better one as far as servant of Christ. And then he adds, look, I'm talking like a crazy man to make a point here. He says, with far greater labors, I have served Christ. Far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times, he said, I've received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea because of the ministry. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety or my concern for God's churches. All of that because he's in the ministry. Paul's life was considerably harder because he was in the ministry than it would have been if he wasn't. He had a pretty cushy situation. He was a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, one of the ruling class of the Jews, lived in probably a nice house. People, oh, hello, sir, when he walked down the street. And God got a hold of his heart and sent him out to tell others how he could get a hold of their hearts as well. And because of that, all those things that I just read came upon the Apostle Paul. And so he served the Lord with trials or through trials here. And that's what he's encouraging these elders to continue to do as well. And so lest any of these elders thought something to the effect of, and you hear this from time to time, well, how hard can ministry be? You only work one day a week. Lest they thought that, Paul sought to set them straight. It's a very difficult thing, Paul would say. If look down at verse 22. Notice what he says there. He says, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that I go to that imprisonment and afflictions await for me. But Paul knew he had to go there. To fulfill the ministry that God gave him, he had to go there. Even though all these people are prophesying, say, or just even giving him words of advice, saying, don't go there, Paul. It's not going to be good. You're going to get arrested. You're going to be put in jail. And Paul says, well, i got to fulfill my ministry. He didn't know exactly what those trials were going to be, but he was not willing to deviate from what God was calling him to do. Look at verse 24. He'll say, and I do not account my life of, of any value, nor as precious to myself. That's, that's comparatively speaking. I could either live my life comfortably, have no problems, or I could have difficulties in life, but do what God has called me to do. Well, I don't count my life of any value to me. 
I have to do what God has called me to do. He says, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The King James Version, the New King James Version, begins that sentence this way, but none of these things shall move me. Paul's chief goal was not his comfort, it was not his safety, it was not even his life. Rather, it was completing the ministry which he had received from the Lord. And now that's what he's exhorting these elders. That's how you were to lead God's people in this particular community. Follow the example that I have set for you. Again, to reference the pastoral epistles, this is what Paul wrote to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, he said, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He would write another place, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then a third time, he would say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the servant of the Lord will face opposition because of their service to the Lord. Now, maybe you're thinking, oh, great. Does that mean that we're all going to have to die or go to prison or something in order to be a servant of Jesus? Not necessarily. It may, but not necessarily. Notice what Paul says in the Acts passage, Acts 20, 24. He says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received. Paul had his race to run. And you and I, we have our own races to run. And so Paul would eventually be imprisoned and executed because of the ministry that he did. But we have another example of an apostle in the scripture, the apostle Paul, who on the other hand lived to nearly 100 years of age and was exiled to an island because of his ministry. The point is we all have a different calling and a different ministry. And yours is to run the race that God gave you and to not allow the cares of this world to hinder you from your race or from my race. Paul, returning to verse 20, notice he says, You yourselves know that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable or you know, profitable. And so in all integrity... Paul could say before these elders that he kept nothing back from the church there. Nothing that would be helpful, nothing that would be profitable for the church did he keep back in his teaching. Look at verse 27, a few verses later. He says, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Twice, depending on the version you're reading, but uh, translated as shrink back from, Twice it's used in these few different verses here. It's a word that could be translated, though it probably wouldn't be, as to chicken out because of fear. Our, our Bibles are a little more eloquent than that. But Paul, on two occasions, he says, I didn't chicken out because of fear to tell you everything you needed to hear. Very important that we understand this. Paul's not saying, I was never once afraid in your presence. There were probably many times where Paul was like, oh man, the rocks are going to come flying now if I say this. So he's not saying, I was never once afraid in your presence. What he is saying is this, despite being afraid in your presence, I didn't allow that fear to cause me to chicken out from teaching those things that needed to be taught and that the people needed to hear. He's saying, look, I knew what needed to be said. And I know how some people would respond. But I said it anyway. I did not shrink from my responsibility to declare to you the whole counsel of God. As we see in verse 27, Paul says he delivered to them the whole counsel of God. Paul didn't just teach the topics that pleased him. Or worse yet, teach the topics that pleased his listeners. Rather, he proclaimed to them the entire counsel of of God's word. And the temptation for us as teachers, whether it's teachers with a class back over here or a congregation of people that are listening to you, or it's parents that are speaking with our children, 
or it's one believer having a conversation maybe with another believer or with an unbeliever, the temptation is to share only certain topics or to share only certain subjects and to leave out others for fear of how our listeners might respond. I was once asked to speak at a local college and about two minutes before the little session, before it was time for me to go up, the leader of the little group called me aside and asked me, told me really, not to mention anything about homosexuality in my address for how it might unnecessarily offend. Now the topic that I was sharing on had nothing to do with homosexuality and so it was kind of like, all right, no problem. We can talk about it anyway. Now I'm thinking I might. Um, <laughs> but if it had been in my topic, should I have shied away from the topic because it might unnecessarily offend some that were in attendance? I think if we were to ask Paul's opinion of the matter, I think we all know how Paul would have answered that. Joel Osteen, pretty popular. A lot of people know who he is. Turn on the TV, you'll probably get him on some channel during the day. But he was once asked why he never preaches on or mentions sin in his sermons. I found that interesting. He didn't push back and say, sure I do. He, he agreed with the, the statement, why he never preaches on or mentions sin in his sermons. And his response was that, this. He said he felt that the world had far too much negativity in it already and that he instead preferred to focus on the positive. All right? But I ask you, is he really preaching the whole counsel of God if he never presents the presence and the consequences of sin? I don't see how we can say he is. And so even if he or someone like him mentions Jesus as the Savior, well, then the obvious question has to be, well, save from what? And failure to mention sin results, in my opinion, in an incomplete gospel message. Paul here was able, again, with a clear conscience, to say to these Ephesian elders, you yourself know that I left nothing out. I've declared the full counsel of God's word. Even those things that I would have preferred not to say or talk about, I talked about those things. And that's why in verse 26 there, he's able to say, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of you all. I think he likely has in mind the words to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, I believe it is. In Ezekiel chapter 3, the Lord uh, speaking to Ezekiel, says this, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So whenever you hear a word of mine from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, well, that wicked person will die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. If you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from the wicked way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he will die because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But, he says, if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Those were the words that the, uh, that the Lord shared with Ezekiel the prophet. He calls him a watchman. Sobering words to read, isn't it? As we try to sort of contextualize them to ourselves. Certainly sobering words, but not impossible words. Ezekiel could do that. It might be hard to do that, but God wasn't asking Ezekiel to do something that was impossible, just something that was difficult. Ezekiel's job, his responsibility was to be obedient, and that's our responsibility as well. Paul, that's what he says to these elders. I was obedient. He says, you yourselves know that I was obedient. Now, follow my example as you lead these people. Be obedient as well. Preach, he says to them, the entire counsel of God. He says, do not shrink back. Don't chicken out. Do not let fear 
of what others might think of you or how they might respond, don't let that keep you from telling them that which will be profitable for their souls. Again, to look at the pastoral epistles, Paul wrote this to Timothy. He says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The servant of God makes a big mistake leaving out portions of God's word, thinking that those portions aren't really helpful for God's people anymore. According to Paul's words to Timothy, it's only through the whole counsel of God's word that the man of God, that the woman of God can be equipped for every good work that he has for them. And so Paul exhorts these elders, don't shrink back. Tell them everything that they need to know. Deliver to them the entire counsel of God's words. A couple final points here, quickly. Verse 31, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Again, he mentions, tear, he mentions tears. But notice here, he says, Therefore be alert. Paul speaks of his alertness, follow my example, during his time with them. Paul wasn't vacationing in Ephesus. He was on the front lines of a battle there in Ephesus. If you go through those pastoral epistles, there are 29 references in those 13 chapters, those three books combined, there's 29 different verses addressing the need for vigilance and being on their guard. I'll let you search them out on your own. But Paul exhorts them, be alert as I was alert. Go down to verse 33 and verse 34. This is the 10th thing that Paul says about his example for them. He says, I coveted no one's silver, no one's gold, no one's apparel. He says, in fact, you yourselves know that these hands, my own hands, ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul says, I didn't covet anybody's stuff. It's been said that the happiest person is not the one who has the most, but the one who needs the least. And Paul understood that. He says, I coveted no one's silver, no one's gold, no one's apparel. And by working all day and ministering all night, you remember the Apostle Paul would work all day in the middle of the day when people would take their naps, he would teach the scriptures, and then he would go back to work and finish out a long day. By doing that, working all day and ministering all night, he demonstrated that he was in the ministry for not for what he could gain from the ministry, but instead for God's glory and for the benefit of the people that he ministered to. And he set that example. He set the example of laboring hard as a minister of God's people, and now he's exhorting these Ephesian elders, do the same. Paul began, he said, follow my example. You know the life I lived among you. He says, I was first and foremost a follower of Jesus. Throughout my time here, I was able to maintain a clear conscience. I came to serve others, not to be served, the third thing. And ultimately, my service was unto the Lord and not to man. Fifth, I served you in humility of mind. I considered others better than myself, even as the example of Christ was set. Sixth, he says, look, you can expect difficulties. Persevere through those difficulties. Seventh, when the fears came, I didn't run from those fears, but I faced them and I persevered through them. Eighth, I presented the entire counsel of God's word, serving as a faithful watchman to tell you what God instructed me to tell you. Ninth, he says, be alert, be vigilant, fully aware that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And then finally, he exhorts them, elders, he says to them, pour out your lives in service to God. To say that another way, work hard in ministry. You're not going to do this one day a week. You're going to pour out your lives on behalf of other people. You can rest when you get to heaven. That's basically what he says to them. That was the example that Paul sought to set for them. And it's what he exhorts them, uh, what he now exhorts them to give themselves to, these elders. And I think the same thing that he told all those other communities as well. The next time that we come together, we're going to look at the same passage 
from the perspective of uh, the message that he shared with the elders, the instructions that he gave them, not so much about following his examples, but specifically about what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. So if you haven't read through the pastoral epistles, I encourage you to do so. Here's the good news. You have, you have three weeks to do it. Um, next week, uh, I'm going to be on a mission project, so I'll be out of town. Um, and so, Brother Kev, I forgot to ask you what you're teaching. Do you know? God is on the throne. So read the whole Bible in preparation uh, <laughs> for that. All righty. Um, then we have a Palm Sunday message, uh, the Sunday before Easter, then an Easter message. And so we'll come back to our study of the book of Acts. Um, I think it's the first Sunday of May. Uh, so you have three weeks to read ahead. Let's pray together. Although you're going to be reading the whole Bible for Kevin. Father, we thank you for a man like the Apostle Paul that wasn't intimidated or embarrassed to say, look at the example that I've set for you. Again, not because he was trying to draw people to himself or that they would pat him on the back, but because he was trying to imitate his Savior. And now he wants these men to do the same. And Father, as we sit here, the majority of us, we're not elders. We may never be an elder of a congregation, but Lord, you have entrusted into our care people's lives. A lot of us here are Sunday school teachers or youth workers or small group Bible leaders. A lot of us here have positions of authority in our places of work. Many of us here are parents and grandparents, and there are people that are looking to us. And so, Father, we want to glean this morning the important principles for our own lives as well. That when we come to the end of our time, whether it's the end of our days or the end of our time at that job or that ministry, we can say, I have a clear conscience. I tried to walk with integrity. I sought to honor the Lord in the things that I did. I lived in such a way that I walked in obedience, even when it was hard and I was afraid to do so. And Father, I'm convinced that if uh, that becomes the fabric of our being, well, that's the, a group of people that you're going to work through. You're going to use to impact the lives of other people for their good and for what's profitable for them. So do that work, I ask Jesus, in your holy name.